Do-do-do-do-do. Welcome back to Caught Monologuing. I'm Ryan Kunzer. And I'm Errol Koenig. And today we are joined, as we have been for the past couple episodes, by Esther Rodriguez. Hello. Yeah. So today is a little bit of a different episode. Uh, normally, in case you haven't noticed, we tend to pick movies that uh, we like and want to talk about and just kind of hang out and chat and do this mostly as just an exercise to stay in touch with friends and keep in Mm -hmm. contact and you know have an excuse to watch movies but today instead um we have decided to address something a little more serious or heavy or at least relevant to the world um Mm -hmm. and we wanted to take a more direct look at the the movie industry and American culture and society in the wake of all the protests and movements uh, from George Floyd's death. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have some plans. We wanted to talk first about uh, the documentary LA 92, uh, which Esther and I picked mostly because of how reminiscent it is of the current day. We wanted to kind of examine what has changed and what hasn't and see what we can learn from that uh, going forward. But we also want to talk about the movie industry as a whole, where representation is, where it's lacking, why it's lacking, uh, which Errol will be able to help speak to. But we're going to talk about LA-92, we're going to talk about the industry, and then talk about some resources that people can look at, resources uh, to help, and kind of see what we can do going forward to make sure this is an ongoing thing and not just a one-off yay we're good and it's all done sort of thing so yeah Yeah. and also want to note you know as a group of uh white people for the most part uh it's very much at least for me i'm educating myself on all of this i you know i knew the watts riot happened but i didn't really know what happened i knew that people started burning down buildings i knew that uh a black person was uh beat by the police other than that not a lot so this is very much an educational experience for me and i feel like the main reason why i wanted to do this uh, is less so to tell you about like my experience and how i view these things but more just to highlight these important uh, works that, and I think everyone should uh, watch and educate themselves with. And partially it's accountability for us because I feel like a lot of times mm-hmm. people will highlight the one thing that they did. You know, I donated to a bail fund once. I read the book White Fragility. I, mm-hmm. you know, learned not to say the N word and therefore I am no longer racist. I have no more work to do. I'm one of those good white people. And I feel like it's really important to create accountability in your daily life as to what you are personally doing to continue to educate yourself and to continue to educate those around you. So Mm -hmm. a little bit in ways, this is an excuse for us to hold each other accountable as we continue to educate ourselves and watch more and read more and do more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we know this is just like the first step in a long, you know, process of, you know, making sure, uh, or at least for me, that, you know, I know it's right, that I understand uh, all different types of experiences in America and throughout the world. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start off LA-92, uh, which, like we said, we wanted to talk about because of how similar and how different it is from our the, the current protests that were going mm-hmm. on. Um, Errol since you took the notes can you give us a real quick tldr about the watts riots and what la92 covered sure so essentially i'll go real quick in 1992 rodney king was out driving uh, late at night a couple friends he was pulled over by a couple cops specifically stacy coon lawrence powell timothy wind uh, theodore Reseno. Um, And Wikipedia also noted Orlando Solano, but it was only the four that were highlighted uh, in the documentary. And they beat him severely. And that went to trial. And the police 
long story short, were acquitted, found not guilty uh, of doing anything wrong. So people were upset, rightfully so. Riots ensued. There's more stuff going on. They also talk about how like a couple days after uh, Latasha Harlins uh, was killed after attempting to buy some stuff at a at a convenience store and was just sh- shot after a minor confrontation as she was walking away that helped escalate the situation and then the whole and, and then the movie uh goes on to illustrate all the stuff that happened with the riots how the riots escalated how the police uh at first didn't attempt to de-escalate uh and then eventually when the national guard were called in and that whole situation so yeah that's i think the tldr um am i forgetting anything important no i think that hits all the major parts Mm -hmm. so esther what's what about this struck you as something that was similar or separate from today there are a couple of big things that i wanted to point out i was really struck specifically by the way that one of the white officers i'm forgetting his name said directly you know i feared for my life and i believe that was lawrence powell right not mistaken and that struck me to the way that defense is being currently used as an excuse for horrific actions taken by cops against pretty much everyone but especially black men and black women and black children Mm -hmm. even as well Mm -hmm. and it's a video a home video that was taken from someone's house where you see this man being you know they mentioned in the documentary that he was struck with a club 56 times and that's not counting the fact that he was electrocuted you know content warning we're talking about violence against black men and women yes but um And you can see that he wasn't resisting arrest. He wasn't attempting to attack any of the police. He was just, you know, trying to get away from the people who were beating him. And yet you still had this man look directly in the camera and say, I feared for my life, when it's very obvious that he was not in danger at all. It had a very important impact in that America saw a man being brutally beaten for no reason there was proof given it wasn't you know a cop's word against someone that they called an offender's word Mm -hmm. you know he said she said you know i am a man of the law therefore i always tell the truth it was a direct video of cops beating a black man horrifically and nothing happened to them it was said that it was okay because they feared for their lives because they didn't mean to do it so brutally and that was a direct message to the american people that if you're black we do not care what happens to you if you're black we do not care if you live if you're an officer of the law you can do whatever you want and nothing will happen to you Mm -hmm. and we see that that's the exact same problem that's happening now the same words that they were saying then they're saying now the same horrific actions taken against american citizens and non-american citizens are still happening yeah Mm -hmm. it's watching that the documentary it really felt like 30 years on not much has changed like it word for word like this could have just been said in milwaukee and it just you know it, it really felt like everything old is new again you know e- even not that this is really relevant but like you see george hw bush uh, as president and his attorney general bill barr who is also our current attorney general and Mm -hmm. ordered the uh the troops in dc to clear out lafayette square like it's it's literally the same people too kind of making these calls and one of the things that i really wanted to highlight is there there is a moment in the documentary where when the I believe the police commissioner, the police chief, my terminology is not necessarily correct, you know, was questioned on whether he thought the use of this violence was endemic of a bigger problem. And he said directly, like, this is not a line of questioning that you want to go down on. If you do, you know, there might be consequences for you and the people you represent. And the 
council person, I believe it was a council person who was questioned, said directly, like, is that a threat? Are you threatening me? Like, are you threatening that you will not disperse police to the areas that we represent if we decide that we're going to stand against you or take a look at, Mm -hmm. you know, what's going on in the police department? And of course, the commissioner went, how dare you? I've never been so offended in my life. That's not what I said. And yet, as soon as the protests turned violent, the first thing that he did was withdraw all support, all police officers for a minimum of 24 hours. I believe it might have been a full 48. Mm. Yeah, that was uh, Chief Daryl Gates uh, that was quote-unquote defending his police officers. But yeah, it was really endemic of this idea that like police officers are are the law and therefore are also above the law that whatever they do can't be wrong because by definition everything they do is right and like questioning that questioning why they made a decision or didn't make a decision or you know why they have the powers that they have you know that questioning that is un-american or unacceptable in some way when we really do need to be taking a hard look at what scope of problems the police deal with and what really they need to actually be able to do to handle those kinds of problems. I mean, one of the things that I heard growing up always was, you know, police are supposed to protect the people. That's the one thing that everyone says is, you know, a police officer is supposed to protect Americans. But who actually are the police protecting you have a situation where a small group of men and i believe a few women but a small group of people got violent they attacked a reporter they attacked a couple of people in cars they threw things at cars and the first thing that they did was pull out all of the cops when you know buildings were being burned down when people were being injured and beaten where were the cops protecting themselves Mm -hmm. but when a cop is questioned not even attacked when a cop is questioned suddenly all men and women in blue are rolling out to protect their brethren you don't really see a lot of you know cops on the streets actually protecting people you see them harassing people and protecting each other and that kind of feeds into the idea of you know people say you know what about the good cops like one bad apple doesn't break down the whole police force but the the thing that we see is that good cops don't stay cops. Good cops who question the system get thrown out of the police force. The people who remain and continue to have these powers are the people who are all, you know, buddy-buddy with each other. So in terms of reforming the police force, it's very difficult to reform a police force where there aren't any good apples left. Yeah. I mean, I'm speaking from a position of I believe the police should be abolished because it's a racist system it started in racism, it continues in racism, and there's no way to reform a system that is inherently racist and inherently upholding, you know, the interests of white wealthy people. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the other movies that I watched uh, this past week, actually, I watched this movie this morning, um, was the 13th Ava DuVernay's uh, documentary um, about the criminal system in America, and that touches on that uh, as well it essentially talks about that after the abolition of uh slavery um it was pretty much slavery can't do it anymore except for jails uh which essentially incentivized people to incarcerate as many black people as they could so they can keep up with the free labor uh the american south was rebuilt after uh the civil war by unpaid black labor of those who are in jail uh and that whole thing has snowballed into what it is now where it is the private companies that own the prison that are lobbying for uh their you know bills or programs to be put in place that would lead to more people being put in jail uh you know typically of or typically from uh black communities uh so it's you know the whole the whole thing that the whole police system needs to be restructured from the ground up uh you know taken away and figure out a way that actually helps protect all americans mm-hmm. the prison system as well one one of the things yeah. that i think is becoming fairly common knowledge but if not i'll say it here 
is that a lot of times states owe private prisons a certain quota of people. And if Mm -hmm. they don't incarcerate a particular number of people or more during a given space of time, they actually owe the private prison a lot of money, millions of dollars, which Mm -hmm. incentivizes things like, you know, the continued illegality of marijuana, being able to be jailed for a very, very high number of years for possession of very, very little weed because it's a very easy way to incarcerate a large number of people, specifically black people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how the police work kind of feeds into that, because if you're a police officer in an area that doesn't have a lot of crime, how do you make your quotas? You make it by ticketing people, you make it by, you know, unfairly stopping people, arresting people for stupid things or things that they never did. One of the, the things that kind of you know, it sounds good on paper until you think about it, is you can be jailed for a resisting arrest. Mm-hmm. A resisting arrest can be asking an officer why you're being detained or not hearing someone call out to you and continue to walk. You can have been proven to have, you know, done nothing else illegally. You were just going about your day. You have no drugs on you. You have not assaulted anyone. You have done absolutely nothing other than exist in America as a black person. And a cop can have you in jail for resisting arrest. And you can do time for resisting arrest simply because you either didn't give them what they consider to be their due deference, you didn't hear them when they asked you to stop, you asked them why you were being detained in the first place, and you're in prison now. Mm-hmm. And that is the way in which our legal and policing system has kind of built itself around. And prisons are not that much better. If I can call out some a book that I have read, Life and Death in Rikers Island by Homer Venters, kind of discusses Mm. the treatment of inmates, the the system that is developed in between medical practitioners and guards in the prison system, and the ways in which inmates are mistreated and oftentimes heavily abused by the guards. We have these systems in place around incarceration and, and arrest that put people in a position of power where the main thing that they get out of their day-to-day job is the ability to abuse people. Mm. Cops a lot of times aren't actually paid a huge amount of money or, you know, they're incentivized as you, if you stay late booking someone thing that I learned, but you might want to double check on in case I'm wrong about it because I'm still Mm. learning is that sometimes if you get someone in court for what's considered like a really really stupid arrest or like you know this makes no sense why were they arrested in the first place what some lawyers i have read on the internet have done is sometimes check to see what time that person was arrested and if it was the end of a cop shift sometimes they'll arrest someone because the process of booking and like getting them set and doing the paperwork it takes a long time but is really easy it's a lot of downtime and they get paid time and a half for doing it mm-hmm. and there are little incentives built into the system of your regular salary rate is not that much your benefits are probably okay but what you get is the ability to exert your will as if you were how do i put it kind of unlimited authority the idea that you have unlimited mm-hmm. authority you have unlimited protection in their eyes at least, and the ability to hurt people. And that's the people that are continually being drawn to these jobs is, you know, the people who are good people. It it reminds me, you know, a lot of the, you know, the the old phrase, current phrase, whatever you want to call it, the war on crime, Mm -hmm. uh, where you, you get the war mentality, the people who are drawn to being a cop are the kind of people who respond to having the power to you know get a kick out of walking around with a firearm on their side and knowing that they're invincible you know and when you when you talk about the war on crime or the war on drugs when you talk about you know getting uh military equipment into the hands of local police like it breeds that culture where the every officer is has to back up every other officer and you know they're the only thing standing between you know us and total anarchy and that we have to give them total deference or else the mm-hmm. world will collapse and you know years and years and years of that makes it worse and worse and at that point can you know, how do you go about fixing that kind of system can you even fix that kind of system 
when it's a cultural change and not in addition to it being a structural change yeah especially when racism is so baked into the system where cops are basically what it seems is being taught to look at every black person every latino person basically every non-white person as a criminal first a person second they are automatically in the wrong you know you see a black man standing on the street corner go look to see if he's doing anything illegal this Mm -hmm. especially pops up for me because i'm from new york and stop and frisk was a huge huge problem because it you know it might sound good on paper we're gonna decrease the amount of drugs getting spread throughout communities we're gonna decrease the amount of firearms available on the streets you know if we stop people who look suspicious and check to see what they've got on them look we're you know removing dangerous things from the streets of new york except who are you actually stopping who's in trouble here it's primarily Mm -hmm. black men yeah it's the type of thing that uh in 94 um bill clinton this is another thing uh that i uh i heard about in um the 13th uh bill clinton passed like sweeping you know laws about federal government such as like the three strikes you're out about how that would send people to prison for like an even longer time uh but really cracking down on all of this uh kind of in reaction uh, to, you know, what had happened before, just two years earlier in 92 with the L.A. riots. And it's the type of thing that, you know, Bill Clinton now realizes that was a mistake. He did the wrong thing. That led to, you know, thousands to probably millions of black people uh, in jail because how he ramped up the department. But at the time... Like, people from the Black Caucus, like, in, in government, uh, Black leaders thought, well, let me try to help this problem with our within our own community, so I'm going to support these issues without realizing that, oh no, the it's going to be turned around and not, mm-hmm. and not actually help the community, but actually hurt it uh, majorly. Right. That makes me, reminds me of a quote from LA92, where one woman was talking about how you know the the leaders the politicians are not leaders that these kind of movements are you know come from the people leading and then politicians following you know mm-hmm. and bill clinton is a perfect example of that of you know years on he's you know talks about the error but at the time he was just kind of following what public opinion was mm-hmm And a lot of the failures that we currently see in terms of reforming the police force are because there really isn't governmental support for communities. There's the idea of, you know, we'll keep throwing money at this problem and it'll fix it. We're not going to, you know, give more money to schools. We're not going to give more money to local clinics. They're not giving money to the sort of things that address the root cause. They're just trying to beef up police departments kind of thing. Right. Part of the issue is... A lot of what I have seen and read about so far, and I am so happy to be corrected if I'm wrong, is a main issue that currently surrounds especially black communities is these are communities that have been in poverty for a large number of years, that have been kept in poverty between things like redlining, between, you know, getting rid of the Black Panther Party, which was doing a huge amount on the local street level towards supporting Mm -hmm. communities and kids, between the defund of education, between not getting correct medical care, not having medical care available. You're putting all of these kids into a world that is against them no matter what you do, and then yelling at them for not being able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps when... Mm -hmm. The whole purpose of pulling yourself out by your bootstraps is a bullshit phenomenon. Most of the people that we see, I think, you know, quote unquote, succeeded are people who came from family money, who had these communities behind them and supporting them. And if you're not giving money towards what people actually need within the community and then saying, oh, look, you know, they're not succeeding. This kid, you know, didn't finish high school. Therefore, there's something wrong with him. He belongs in prison. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the mentality that I see a lot of people, you know, especially white people starting to have is or not starting that they've always had that, you know, 
if these kids were really going to amount to anything. Here's these social markers that they should have hit. You know, this kid should have finished high school and gone to a good college. And that's how we know that he was actually a good kid. And we're not looking Mm -hmm. into all of the things that are standing in the way. Maybe he doesn't have access to a good education. Maybe he doesn't have access to food. Maybe he doesn't have access to a stable home life. Maybe his parents are working 80 hours a week so they can't help him with his homework. It's a, it's a systemic problem that goes outside of the police force, you know? When mm-hmm. the gangs in your community are the people who are providing you breakfast and lunch because your parents aren't able to because they can't afford it or for whatever myriad of other problems are, the first place you're going to turn to when you don't know where to go is your local gang and you're going to join up. And there are thousands of stories of kids who come from bad areas. This sort of ties into Moonlight a little bit who Mm -hmm. are bright kids, lovely kids, who just aren't given access to these opportunities or the support system that they need in order to pick a different path in life. And that kind of also ties into a little bit of the idea that it's not a super extra sad tragedy when a black person is killed and we can point to the fact that they could play the violin or they were a sweet person or they're an EMT because it is horrific that any black person is being killed in this manner, regardless mm-hmm. of whether they have a prior arrest on their record, regardless of whether they have done jail time. No person should be treated in this manner regardless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it... it kind of makes me really think about the like the you have to be exceptional as a non-white person to be counted at least equal with a white person like you Mm -hmm. know like you mentioned with moonlight you know having stories told about people who don't fit the white person mold of what exceptional is is like it's very important because normally if you have a side character in a movie you know especially the big popular blockbuster movies that people see you know they're usually exceptional in some way that makes them earn the right to stand next to the protagonist who is usually Mm -hmm. white you know and if your your main exposure to to that is just through these movies where people you know, you have to be exceptional to be in the movie to begin with. Like, it continues that cycle. It breeds the, the, the feeling of you know, it's only a tragedy because they could play the violin. Right. Or one of the, it it plays into your like day to day life as well. Like, you know, kids who are black and get into Ivy League schools are a lot of times told, oh, it's because of affirmative action. Or, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're just filling a quota. Like, there's a white person who didn't get in because of you. And it's microaggressions like that that have continued to make America an incredibly racist country. I feel like, especially amongst white people, there's this sense of if you're not actively doing something demonstrably racist, if you, you know, aren't the type of person who says the N-word a lot, then of course you're not racist and you're fine. And in all honesty, every person who isn't black is racist. We have been raised in a system that is racist. We've been raised with a lot of media that is oftentimes racist, with racist Mm -hmm. depictions of people. Unlearning that takes a lifetime, and it's something you have to actively do. Just because you're not going out of your way to make someone's life harder because they're black doesn't mean that you're doing the right thing or saying the right thing or, you know, helping people. And one of the best things that you can do especially as a white person is go to your racist family members go to the family members that think that they aren't racist but then you know say that thing that's maybe not politically correct in the right way but they were joking they swear and educate them as to what they are doing wrong and make them be better because accountability isn't done through silence and white silence is white violence yeah i I always think back to a conversation that uh we had with my grandmother who said something similar she said you know when i was raised the phrase you know i don't see color was like a good thing like that was the goal and you know we we had tried to have a conversation about why that's kind of sweeping things under the rug and 
doesn't address any structural issues and like it's important to continue to hold people accountable and you know even people who think that they're doing well and are doing the right thing don't always realize that they're not which is why it's important for us as you know three white people to continue Mm -hmm. to to watch these stories and try and learn and make ourselves and the people around us better the the question is always what can we do in our day-to-day lives like one of the things that i've heard a lot of people talk about especially you know in corporate and across twitter and other things are you know use black lives matter as an excuse to promote or like to to push forth more diversity in your workplace but Mm -hmm. diversity isn't you know the how do I put it? Isn't, you know, we've got slightly more diversity. The problems are gone because diversity isn't the same as equity and it's not the same thing as justice. Hiring two new black people in your all white workspace and then putting the onus on them in order to make your workspace less racist, that's racist. And that's a microaggression. And then if they can't stand up going, oh, maybe they weren't good enough. Well, you put them in a system that's working against them, surrounded by racist white people every day. You didn't give them the things that they needed to be successful. You asked them to head diversity teams of which, you know, don't do anything except point and say, look, we have one black person on this panel. Therefore, we are diverse. We're listening to their voices. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more that goes into it. Yeah. And not to cut into our conversation that you're going to have later about industry issues, but that essentially is, you know, one of big things going on in the entertainment industry. Uh, It's, you know, I guess we can just move this part of the conversation up to now because I think it segues so perfectly. Um, It's the type of thing that... uh, what used to happen was when, you know, oh, we don't have any black people on the staff, they hired a black writer, or we don't have uh, any women or any people, uh, you know, in the LGBTQ uh, plus community. Um, They just hired one. But it's the type of thing that when you think about it, they really hire more from their, like, pool of interns. The people that, like, actually have gotten their foot in the door. But a huge thing in the entertainment industry is unpaid internships. I've, you know, I have been lucky and I recognize my privilege. I've had multiple unpaid internships, uh, which I've been allowed to do because I come from a pretty well-off family that allowed me to move to LA for a summer. Uh, Frankly, if you total it all up, probably about a year of time, uh, getting no money, uh, but still being able to work in make the connections in the industry and learn what I need to know. Uh, I had that, I I had, I guess, the benefits. I was able to do all of that stuff. I had the privilege to do that. But the majority of America, uh, one can't afford to just take off a summer and not do a job or not, and like, or do free labor. Or they're not from Los Angeles or New York and can't afford moving out to one of those cities to like take advantage of one of those opportunities. And because they can't get their foot in the door in the first place, they can't really do anything. Like, you know, they don't know how to get in, but the way to get in is to essentially like work for free labor when you're younger. But it's a whole, I guess, cyclical cycle of, uh, problems and it's being addressed uh, a lot of places I mean first steps but you know some some like talent agencies and like production companies now have paid uh, internships which although not perfect still opens the door to more people to try uh, to get in the door to the industry so it's the type of thing that it starts from the ground up those internships are what the majority of people the industry start with and that's closed off to a lot of people primarily you know people of color uh you know that don't have the same advantage that advantages that i do as a you know a white dude from a rich family and there's a lot of pressure i feel like especially that is put on you know if there's one person of color in the entire department yeah then that's a huge amount of pressure put on them to be 
the voice. And mm-hmm. I, I've seen a lot of, I don't know, two things are coming to mind. It's the Sleepy Hollow situation. I don't know if you're appraised of that. No. So no. I don't necessarily have all of the notes and background on that. So that might be a better saved conversation for a different episode or off the episode. But mm-hmm. it's a writer, a black woman who wrote for the show Sleepy Hollow, who spoke out about the amount of racism that she experienced. And one of the the lead, I say leads on the show, I didn't watch a lot of it, is a black mm-hmm. woman who also experienced a lot of racism, whose story was undercut, who I believe was also getting paid less. But don't quote me on that. It's been a long time. But another one that I wanted to point out as well, which isn't necessarily related to the entertainment industry the same way, but was an article written by a black writer from Cards Against Humanity who was mm-hmm. what who was institutionalized against his will for several days by his bosses for speaking out against them and their racism. Wow. And That's this, you know, that is hopefully, you know, the extreme once in a lifetime case but i doubt it there there's a huge pressure put on black people when they enter the workforce or enter as you know the diversity candidate to stand there and not a lot and not actually institute any change or institute you know lip service change and to make everyone feel better about the things that they do mm-hmm. and that that makes it difficult to give black people, you know, a hold in these industries, especially. Like, if you look at publishing, the majority of people that are in publishing are white that are higher up. That's not necessarily the full rule now, but if you look at a lot of the executives, they're all white, and they're mostly white men, not quite as much as they used to be, but... Mm-hmm. If you go into a room full of interns for, let's say, even just agency work, it mm-hmm. is a sea of young mostly blonde white women from privileged families and it's very difficult to open up these industries and change the foundations of them to make them less racist in and of themselves if you look at the publishing industry from a layman's point of view you have books that get sent oftentimes if we're looking at commercial publishing and not just academic or other smaller houses you have Mm -hmm. a book that gets sent to an agency the author is oftentimes picked up by an agent books that go into commercial presses are usually more successful if they come through an agent, though that is not always the case. That agent will then send that book to a bunch of different editors who sometimes she actually has personal relationships with. When I say personal, it's more, you know, they know each other by name. They might have gotten coffee a time or two. Like, they Mm -hmm. can put names to faces. And those editors will then review the manuscript and sometimes they'll take it on. Sometimes they'll send it back and say, hey, you know, need some work. Here's the things I liked. Here's the things that I didn't do some revisions. Or sometimes they'll flat out turn it down. Then from there, if an editor really likes it, they might pick it up, pitch it to their bosses and say like, hey, this is a book that I want on my specific list. Here's why I think it's going to make a lot of money. Here is a contract like I'm going to offer this to the author and then from there they Mm -hmm. negotiate you know how much of an advance is the author going to get how much money goes into this and if you look at all of those steps how difficult is it to get published if you're a black person if every round that you go through of approval whether to get an agent then to get an editor then to get approved by the editor's bosses are all Mm -hmm. white people who don't think that the stories that you tell matter as much as a white person's stories. Yeah. There there are all these layers that are in place. There, There's a very good hashtag that went around that I want to call out, actually, that's called Publishing mm-hmm. Paid Me, that talks about the differences and advances, actually, that are being received by authors. So Publishing Paid Me was started on Twitter by L.L. McKinley, who's the author of the Nightmare books, beginning with A Blade So Black, and she's an advocate for equality and inclusion in the publishing industry. She also created the hashtag What Women of Color Writers Here. So this hashtag was participated in by a number of famous writers, including N.K. Jemisin, Roxane Gay, Scott Westerfield, and Zoraida Cordova. and I can give more information about what books those authors have written. Mm-hmm. But what it was was a sweeping across of authors putting forth exactly what advances they got on each of their books published and showing the automatic discrepancy between men and women but especially 
how much less black authors receive in advances than their white counterparts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think kind of uh, piggybacking a little bit off of what you were talking about, um, about like trying to get your book published and you have to go through all these different layers of white people, uh, at least from what I know in the entertainment industry, uh, to like get to each of those jobs, it's also an uphill battle. Because like I mentioned, it takes a second to get in the door. Then once you're in the door to get promoted, it's usually a culture fit to like become someone's assistant. And a culture fit, not all the time, but a lot of the times, like if you have similar interests, you know, similar outlooks on life, that a lot of the times looks like white person to white person. That's just how it is. Of course, some people are more, I guess, open-minded, but because that's not the case for most people uh that leads to a situation where getting i guess off of that first like out of that first i guess group into that second group the second tier of your career it's like it's it's even more difficult uh to get up that rung and then same deal for the rung after that to like now, now that you're an assistant, how do I become a coordinator? School? They're going to go with better culture fit. The they're going to go with the you know the white person that has that has a similar taste in you know movies or TV shows uh, as you know the current department head or whatever. It's just the type of thing that each step you know on this ladder is more difficult for people that are different. Uh, so it just not only is it hard to get in the door, but to keep climbing and keep going up, it's just a struggle. Uh, and then you have executives at the top who will take your, you know, storyboarded idea or whatever project you oversee that's about, you know, black people and more than just a stereotype. When I say stereotypical story, I mean the kind of story that you see on TV a lot where it's about, you know, the black person is the villain or fits into this very particular mm-hmm. stereotype and getting those stories approved by an executive board that is all white people who might look at you directly and say, like, well, why would people want to watch a show about that? Like, why would people care? And I feel like that's a a problem that you get in a lot of creative industries is people, you know, reading through whatever new material is being put out to people and go, well, they're not really going to care about having a black lead, so since it's not financially feasible for us, we can't let you tell your story. Yeah, I mean, I think a great example of this in uh, 1989, uh, so a little while ago, but there was two movies that came out about, quote unquote, the black experience. One was Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. The other was Glory with Denzel Washington and Morgan Freeman and mm-hmm. all that. Uh, the one that got a significantly bigger budget was the one where the main character and the person who the story was told uh, the person who the story was told through was the white guy which is Glory, which is about the white, I guess, general who oversaw the first black uh, battalion of soldiers in the Civil War. But it was all about the white guy's perspective of the story versus do the right thing, which is just not that. It showed uh I guess the story was told mostly through um, uh, Spike Lee's character's point of view, but it gave a more, I guess, a nuanced view of all the different stories that were going on along this block uh, in Brooklyn at the time. So it's the type of thing that, you know, if you're going to try to take those quote-unquote bigger swings, try to do give a more honest, uh, realistic portrayal that, I guess... I mean, this isn't the right word, um, but would seem risky to film investors or, you know, studio execs or whatever. It's not going to get the same funding. It's, you know, if it gets funding at all. So I have a question for both of you, since you guys attended, you know, college and majored in what is supposedly the pipeline to get you into both of your respective industries. Like, was Mm -hmm. this was diversity in storytelling was 
you know, not falling into tropes. Were those ever discussions that teachers had that people, you know, anyone had in class? Uh, so at the Hopkins film department, uh, it was like, Mm -hmm. they tried to advocate for showing like a wide diversity of, uh, movies like, uh, my, I mean, one of, we watched, um, uh, Boys in the Hood in one of my classes, which is another great movie that I would highly recommend everyone watch. Um, we watched that, uh. Oh, I'm blanking of, and there's a name of this is other movie that is really powerful, black and white. Uh, I think, Killer, uh, of Sheep. Yes, uh, Killer of Sheep is a movie written uh, and directed by Charles Burnett, uh, which gives like a really real gritty portrayal uh, about uh, black life in America, and yeah, it's. Like, they tried to show this. They tried to push the boundary um, of, like, what can be shown. Which, I'll give points to Hopkins for that. But I also will say they didn't necessarily do a great job of, like, teaching people how to get into the industry. Just, like, here's how you make your own thing. Mm -hmm. So, if someone wants to go off to, you know, particularly a black person wants to go off and, you know, work in the industry... Uh, and they might not have the resources to be able to just do the internship thing like everyone else. They might not know what to do or how to do it, um, which is the type of thing that I would like to be just shown more at film schools, like how you can break into the industry um, outside of the unpaid internship route, because I didn't really know anything else. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. Was that ever a discussion for you guys, Esther? Not really. It, the creative writing department, at, I also went to Hopkins, as we know, since we all became friends there. Mm-hmm. It. I will say some of my professors did try to do a good job of making sure that we looked at stories that were, you know, written by authors around the world, written by black authors, written by Asian American authors, and so on. But the majority of the people in my program, at least that I had classes with, were all white. And all of my professors were white. So there is only so Mm -hmm. much that you can get from a place where, you know, a a large part of sharing a creative writing department with people is, you know, sharing the things that you're writing. And if the majority of people in your class, if not all of the people in your class are white, then you get a certain limitation of experience that that is one of the the things that like I didn't like about having a degree in creative writing was just a lot of the people that where I went to school with were all white from very privileged backgrounds and the stories that we read and the stories that they wrote all reflected that so there was a definite lack of different viewpoints that we felt and it wasn't, you know, terrible. Like, mm-hmm. I loved my program, but there was a very good conversation that I had with someone in a playwriting class I took, actually, who's from Hong Kong. And as you both know, I am, you know, my mom is white, my dad is Puerto Rican. So mm-hmm. while I, I am white, I come from a mixed heritage and we were both started laughing about how we noticed that in a lot of the stories that we wrote, our protagonists were always white and they mm-hmm. always spoke a certain type of like proper English. And we both started laughing as we were like workshopping one of our things when I was like, you know, this doesn't really reflect the, the way that people spoke when I grow up. And she's just like, yeah, I always feel terrible writing things and like, with not in English or like with characters that speak I believe she spoke Mandarin but I could be wrong it might have been Cantonese but Mm -hmm. she was like I always feel bad because I feel like I have to provide a translation and we got into this really like interesting conversation about how you know even though our perspectives were very different from our companions we felt compelled to write so that we match them 
And it was a huge Mm -hmm. moment for each of us when we like went out of our way for another like piece that we were going to workshop to come in and make sure that we like brought things that better matched our experiences growing up. Like she started writing from the perspective of someone who was Korean and I started writing from the perspective of someone who was also Hispanic. And it really changed the way I looked at what I was writing and Mm -hmm. really analyzed how much of the things that I was working on specifically were all from the perspectives of white men and I am not male and I'm from a mixed heritage and none of my protagonists up to a certain point were ever Hispanic and it kind of blew my mind in a way that I had spent a trial to you know watching mainly shows and things where the the leads were all white and mostly male and I hadn't really processed how much that influenced the way that I looked at things creatively until you know Mm -hmm. one of my classmates and I like spread out all of our stuff and went wow we're all writing from the perspective of white men and we are not that at all Mm -hmm. and had to take an active role in saying like what parts of my childhood experiences can I bring in like what what is too much of you know how much Spanish can I put in something without it being too much is there ever too much what is my role culturally in producing so I wouldn't say that it wasn't necessarily a conversation that came up I would say it was something that I definitely talked about with my classmates but was not necessarily talked about with professors the same way because they were less there to tell us what to write about or how to write and more there Mm -hmm. to kind of give us the toolkit with which to tell the stories that we wanted to tell yeah I mean I would agree for the film program too uh you know thinking back on it I haven't really given this much thought which is on me but like what I if I can remember correctly I don't think there was any black teachers in the film department uh and on top of that uh while the movies that they showed in some of like the film I guess theory classes were diverse and they tried to show like a wide you know breadth of different you know topics and movies when it came to actually like the writing classes uh you know what they teach us you know for the most part at least for me was like write what you know so while none of the characters that i ever wrote in my screenwriting classes ever really had I never, like, gave them a race, but they all talked like white people. It's, you know, it's the type of thing that they give you the tools for people to, I guess, write, but just, but nothing else in terms of how to think, how to develop characters from different backgrounds and ethnicities and religions. Just, they give you the, like, they give you the pen and the paper and how the pen's supposed to get on the paper, but they don't necessarily go into depth how to show the different uh, backgrounds and experiences people have. It's one of the things that you know drives me crazy about media. Actually, is the fact that especially in fantasy world, I'm someone who you know reads a lot mm-hmm. of fantasy, watches a lot of fantasy. It it's something that I grew up really loving, and. A huge number of those fantasy books and fantasy worlds all mm-hmm. have racism as an inherent part of that society yeah. or whatever thing that they're creating. And it kind of blows my mind that all of these authors who write, you know, build these incredible worlds and, you know, put so much effort into developing entirely new languages for the way magic is written and so on and just still write in this system of racism instead of just not trying to think beyond that or give their characters options beyond that. I don't know. This Mm -hmm. is just me musing a lot, but it, it's like the way in a lot of stories where rape is such a big thing and like sexual violence is like a turning point thing. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to write a story where, you know, the the biggest thing that your white male protagonist is confronting is, you know, racism is, um, exists in the world and he, with his great sword of power, must go in and fix all mm-hmm. of the wrongs and take that point as the white savior. And, you know, that's still a really big trope in media is, you know, the white man comes in and saves all of the black men from themselves and the other scary white men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, this is going to be an ongoing discussion, as was we mentioned up at the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that the the intent is that each episode going on from from now on uh, will each of us bring some kind of you know an article or a movie or a recommendation of some kind, something mm-hmm. that highlights the n- need for diversity or reflects. Uh, you know, current events at that moment or is mm-hmm. something important that all of our listeners should help educate themselves on. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, know, accountability for us. Yeah, we want this to be not a one-time thing, that this is an an effort, a conscious effort that we're all going to actively participate in, mm-hmm. you know, to hold ourselves accountable and to hold, hopefully, our listeners accountable too. Yeah. I mean, because originally when we were talking about doing this podcast, my thought process with uh, it with is like, well, I want to educate myself. I love movies. That's, you know, my whole life kind of. So let me watch as many as I can, as fast as I can to educate myself. Um, and I quickly learned that's not the way to do it. Uh, you know, um, so for example, this past week, um, I made a list of, I want to say, like, ten things to watch starting Monday. Like, watch two a day by the time we get to today. Uh, I would, you know, have this, you know, wealth of knowledge about all of these things, all of these new experiences. Uh, and, you know, I started on Monday. And I watched an episode of When They See Us which is Ava DuVernay's miniseries uh, on Netflix about the Central Park Five. And it it was one of the most powerful things I've ever watched. Uh, it's a very heavy show, but it just packs... I don't know, it's just so impactful from beginning to end. It's the type of thing that like you can't believe what happened but you also know that this is a true story it's like how could things get this bad the first episode uh you know is all about how the police officers arrested these five kids for committing uh, a rape that they didn't commit and then essentially forced them all to confess to crimes that they didn't do and rat each other out so when it eventually got to the court, they have conflicting testimonies. Uh, and it was just watching the police officers like beat these kids in the interrogation room, lie to them, trick them to... It was just so powerful. And long story short, um, the point that I was trying to get at before I started rambling about how good When They See Us is, uh, is... After watching that movie, I just wanted to sit in it. I wanted to, like, take the time to reflect and, like, think about, like, what I actually just watched. How powerful it was, you know, what's... Like, just think about it. Let it affect me to its fullest extent. Rather than, I guess, rush through the four episodes of the show. Um, So... Well, I did not get to the whole list this week. I kind of slowed down, uh, watched a couple things that you know closer to the top of my list, and uh, I feel like this is this will become a longer term thing. So rather than forcing myself to watch twenty things in a week, it's gonna be watching only like one or two things a week but making sure to like think about it and digest it and understand it and learn from it uh going forward so um i know we hadn't really prepared for this first but uh i'll just mention the things that i watched this past week uh that i highly recommend uh everyone listening to also watch um you know it's the type of thing that i could tell you all the things I learned from it but I think it's more important to go learn for yourself don't hear it secondhand through some white guys uh, recap so the things that I watched as we've been talking about uh, I watched LA 92 
Um, I watched the 13th, watched Moonlight, watched the first episode of When They See Us, uh, and I watched Do the Right Thing. Those are all, I guess, after watching them all, they're all really important things for people to watch. And it's also kind of crazy how relevant all of them are. Even Do the Right Thing, which came out, you know, 30 years ago, it could have easily, you know, just like Ryan was saying earlier about, like, the riots in 92, that's the type of story that if you just place that in Brooklyn today, it would still hold up. Like, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's another story about, uh, you know, racism in America and, like, different, you know, communities and views and... Uh, and it gets to police brutality uh, towards the end, and specifically uh, a chokehold that kills uh, one of the characters, uh, Radio Rahim, and goes into the community starting to riot and burning down the white-owned uh, the, the white-owned uh, pizza shop. It strikes similar chords to what we just were talking about with LA-92 and what we have been experiencing uh you know, for the past, you know, month and a half. Though I will definitely pause and say that um, the use of the word riot has been, like, racialized in a way of, you know, black Mm -hmm. people are always rioting, they never protest. So one of the things that I want to try to do is instead of calling everything a riot, even if that's the term that the media uses a lot, that a lot of times they're not riots, they're protests, and they're very much as a difference. Yeah, I think I think that's fair, and make a mental note of that to do that in the future. I think that's a really good point that I will strive to do better on in the future, so thanks. All right, shall we end up uh, this episode with a couple of links, places to donate, places to help, uh, you know, kind of highlighting things we've talked about here today or important issues relevant to that that we want to point people towards. So I'll start off uh, in the show notes. You will find a link to an Artnet article where they list out mm-hmm. uh, 26 different uh, organizations that are supporting black artists uh, in particular in the film industry, but in other art industries as well, um, where you can support those organizations and where you can donate Um in particular, I want to highlight the Black Artists and Designers Guild, uh, which is explicitly there to help get Black artists, you know, have them help them get the shoe in the door of whichever industry they're trying to get in. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of like what Errol was talking about earlier. So you'll find that in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, so I highlighted four things uh, as well. Um, my the things that I found very broad. Um, I have this one link to uh, this Google document form that is essentially compile a lot of the links and resources that you need, which includes uh, petitions for you to sign if you want to sign positions, places that you can donate to help, you know, black communities, places where you can go so you can learn more for yourself, um, places that you can text or call, such if you want to talk to politicians and voice your concerns about the community, places where you can do that. Uh, as well as uh, some uh, other places to look into uh, Black Lives Matter protests in different countries like Canada, Australia, and the UK. Uh, some links just like Stand with Hong Kong, Free Palestine, some about the Yemen crisis. So everything, not everything, but a lot, a lot of resource for you. Uh, next uh, is this one Google Drive that I found, which is open uh, to the public, which has collected a whole bunch of either scripts or I guess videos or books or articles written uh, by black authors, by black creators uh, about the black experience that it just has so many different things uh, and uh, so many different like things to read or watch uh, or listen to that are important. And then I also found two links uh, that are resources uh, specifically for white people, for how white people can, you know, learn more uh, different resources 
um, for how they can do better, how they can be an anti-racist rather than just not racist, um, as well as different sources for them, uh, like what movies would be recommended for them to watch to learn about different experiences and podcasts and books and articles and and everything. So that's pretty much sums up uh, the things that I found that I thought were important uh, to share. So I have one kind of large overarching list, which is the one put out by New York Magazine for where to Mm -hmm. donate for Black Lives Matter. And that gives kind of like a broad list of organizations that you can support. I want to especially highlight bail funds in here because that's one of the main ways to support protesters who are being arrested and also just community members who might not have enough money family-wise in order to make bond for people. Mm Mm-hmm. I also wanted to highlight a couple of specific organizations. So for one set, I wanted to especially point out that the most vulnerable people in our communities are black women, especially black trans women. So I wanted to highlight blacktrans.org, which is an organization that supports you know black trans people in their communities. There's also the Marsha P. Johnson Foundation. So those are ones, there are many more, but those are at least the main two that I wanted to highlight. And one more that's kind of a more personal one for me as someone who works in the publishing industry, but diversebooks.org makes a point to trying to bolster books written by, well, children's books written by black authors and featuring black protagonists in a way to allow more young kids to see people that look like them on books and have stories about people like them and if you can donate i would super appreciate if you did all right i think that brings us to the end of today's episode you know as we said all the links that we mentioned today are going to be in the show notes you can find them and support them there uh we will be continuing to talk about this in future episodes as well um if you have any comments or want to give us any feedback, there's a form in the show notes where you can do that, or you can shoot us an email at caughtpodcasting at gmail.com or on our Facebook or Twitter accounts as well. Um, am I forgetting anything, Errol? Uh, arrest the people that killed Breonna Taylor. I think we're good. Arrest the cops that killed Elijah McLean. Yes. Yep. All right. Bye. Bye. See ya. Yeah.